Uh, you're welcome to join us. There we go. Thank you. Um, but today's word is uh, from Romans 5, uh, verses 1 through 5. And what a rich text this is. I hope that you just dive into it all week and just camp there. But at the beginning with verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. I love this part. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. May God bless this reading today. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, Grace Life Church. My name is Tommy Clayton, and if I have not had the opportunity to meet you yet, I would love to connect with you after the service and, and hear your story, hear where you came from and how you ended up here today. And if you're watching from home, welcome to Grace Life. Thank you for uh, tuning in. Whatever app you're using or live stream platform you're using, we're grateful for the technology to be able to do that. I'm going to pause and pray. And then we're going to jump right into Romans chapter 5. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for another opportunity to gather and worship you and bring our problems in with us, to not check them at the door. You want all of us, Lord, all of our doubts, all of our heartache, all of our sufferings and, and groanings and agonies, Lord. You want us to bring them in here and, and give our burdens to you so that you can help us, Lord so that you can give us new, uh, fresh understanding and perfective perspective. Tell us how the, the cross and the death and the resurrection of Jesus should shape the way we view hardship in this life and affliction and, and even persecution. And I pray for your spirit to come and open our eyes to see the wonders and the beauty and the power of Jesus Christ and his death on our behalf, Lord, in new ways. We ask all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. During the Revolutionary War, General George Washington was notorious for not giving any mercy or giving any quarter to traitors and to turncoats, to, to people that would sell secrets to the British Army. He had no mercy, he had no patience, he had no tolerance for them. He would send them to the gallows to be hung. Nobody could out persuade or argue him to show leniency to them. But Washington once witnessed an act of love that was so surprising, so shocking, so stunning uh, that it, it caused him to change his mind. Peter Miller was a pastor in the 1700s up in the American colonies. He and George Washington were actually childhood friends, and Peter Miller did some favors for the military. So, so he and General George Washington, this is before Washington was president, they knew each other. Well, Peter Miller was a very gentle soul. He loved Jesus. He loved people. He loved everybody. But there was one man in particular that could not stand him, a tavern owner named Michael Whitman, would go out of his way to slander 
that pastor, to persecute that pastor. He would trip him when he was in public. He would slander him at his tavern. Uh, he tripped him a few times. He even uh, would spit on him when he would see him out and about. It's pretty crazy, right? Once he even punched Pastor Peter Miller in the face. And every time he did something like this, Peter Miller would thank him for the opportunity to trust Christ, and he would forgive him and go his way. He never retaliated. Well, Michael Whitman, along with being a cruel, angry, intolerable man, he was also a traitor. He had been selling secrets and betraying private conversations that he overheard in his tavern about the military strategies of the American troops. He'd been selling those secrets to Britain for years, and uh, it finally caught up with him. In fact, his wife ratted him out. That's how, <laughs> that's how bad of a guy he was, man. His own family betrayed him and said, you know what? You should come and arrest this guy. So, of course, Washington heard about this, so he sent troops to pursue him, to uh, capture him, arrest him, put him on trial, and sentence him to death. He was to be sent to the gallows. He was to be hung for his treason. Well, on the evening before his execution, Pastor Peter Miller heard about this, and he walked. He was an older man by this point. He had a cane, and it was very cold, and he walked 70 miles he walked 70 miles through frigid conditions to Valley Forge to plead for the life of this man. And so General Washington heard that, hey, there's a guy named Peter, Peter Miller that wants to see you. And uh, so they met in Washington's office, and Washington was taken aback by this man who made this 70-mile hike. And he said, this is impossible. I cannot possibly pardon this man. Whitman has done all in his power to betray us. In these times, we cannot be lenient with traitors, he said. And for that reason, I cannot, I cannot pardon your friend, are the words that he used. To which Miller replied, friend? He is no friend of mine. He is my bitterest enemy. And Washington was, of course, puzzled by this. And he said, and you still wish me to pardon him? And he said, I do. And I ask it of you as a personal favor. Why, Washington asked. Why would you want me to pardon your most bitter enemy? To which Peter Miller responded like this, I ask it because Jesus did as much for me. And Washington turned away with tears streaming down his face, the history record tells us, and he came back out and he had produced a slip of paper and he said, take this immediately to the executioner, which was again 20 miles away. So this old man hobbled along 20 miles. He arrived on site when he was already up on the gallows with some other traitors about to be hung. And Michael Whitman looked down and he said, oh, there's my enemy, Pastor Peter Miller, here to finally get his revenge and watch me hang. And Peter Miller waved this slip of paper and he said, I have something for you, executioner. And he took that slip of paper, which was a, a pardon by General Washington. And those men became friends and they walked all the way back home together. It's interesting when you hear a story like that. I know it's far removed from us. That was in the 1700s. But love like that is shocking. It's surprising. It's arresting, it's captivating, it gets your attention, it makes you sit up and take notice because it's so unlike human beings. Our love is, is conditional, isn't it? When we have love for somebody that's unlovable, that, that makes the world sit up and take notice. Well, this passage is all about God's love, all the way actually through verse 11. Romans chapter 5, we're going to focus on verses 5 through 11 today. But this is all about God's love and it's all about basking in God's love. And uh, we started this last week, to bask, to bask in something means 
that you are putting yourself in a position where you can soak up and absorb, absorb maximum benefit. We, we think about basking in the sunshine. You know, and if you go to the beach, you don't want to be under an umbrella if you're trying to get a suntan. You don't want to be under a palm tree. You, you don't want to be there when it's overcast. You want to find the, the, the most strategic, advantageous position where you can soak up all those rays. And when it comes to God's love, it's the same thing. We started last week talking about, uh, actually there were three points in this outline, basking in God's love. One, God pours out his love and we bask in it that way. That's verse five. It says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So God pours out his love. The second point we never got to was that God demonstrates his love. He shows us what his love is like. He, he, he brings us back to doctrine. And then the third point is that God actually applies his love. He applies his love. So he pours it out, he demonstrates it, and, he's applied, and he applies it. And you can see that in, in each of these passages in Romans chapter 5. The first one says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts. That's, that's uh, the experience of it. The second one says, God shows his love for us. That's the demonstration of it. And then the last one is that God is going to apply this. Since we know all these things about God's love, how deep, how unconditional, how powerful it was, and the condition we were in when Christ died for us, we were his enemies, we were weak, we were without power, we were ungodly, we were alienated, and we were sinners. Then he applies it. Since we know those things, then we have assurance that God is going to finish what he starts. So this is a really powerful argument, actually, about God's love. And, and just to be blunt with you, this is all about assurance. This is one of the most powerful places in the Bible about our assurance. And maybe some of you have no idea why God brought you here today. You're struggling with doubt. You're wondering, can God really love somebody like me? I've messed up again, or I haven't been faithful. My devotion is fickle. It's up, it's down. I vacillate. I, I neglect my responsibilities. I don't pray. I don't read my Bible. I don't tell people about God's love. I struggle to obey when it counts. How could God possibly love me? Well, I have good news for you. This passage, when it talks about love and God, it's not talking about our love for God. If my assurance and your assurance was based on our love for God... Can I be the first to tell you we're in serious trouble, folks? <laughs> if I only have assurance when I'm seeing a steady stream of unconditional, unfickle, unchanging, unvacillated, strong love for God, I'm, I'm of all men most to be pitied and most to be miserable because I cannot, my love for God is, is, is not, it's not sure, it's not strong, it's not constant. Is yours? No, this is about God's love for us. This is the basis of our assurance. This is the love that we're basking in. That's what I'm talking about. God wants us to have assurance because when you have assurance of something, man, there's power there. There's security there. I did a wedding yesterday all the way over in almost Palm Coast, and I was listening to this couple exchange vows with one another, you know, reading it and having them repeat it for richer or for poorer, in good times or in bad times, in sickness and in health. And I reminded them, do you know how powerful those vows are for your spouse to hear? And I know vows aren't really for the wedding day. Everyone's in love on their wedding day. Everyone has stars in their eyes. They feel all goo-goo-ga-ga, right? The vows are for 10 years later when you don't feel that way maybe, or you don't feel anything at all. Those vows are powerful. That's your grounds, your means of assurance. And God has given us his word and all these promises that he's made to us that are unconditional, that God 
God views you this way no matter what. God feels this way about you no matter what. That's the basis and the ground of our assurance. That's what anchors this hope that we were talking about earlier in Romans chapter 5. So the first point was that he pours out his love. That's an experience. This chapter goes all the way from Paul arguing gospel doctrine to Paul celebrating a gospel experience. And this is the experience part that we talked about last week. His love has been poured out. Pouring out is something that you experience. It's one thing to talk about God's love. It's another thing for you to experience God's love. This is like a bucket of cold, refreshing water being dumped out on you to where you feel it. It's a subjective assurance. You're, the Spirit of God is testifying with your spirit that you belong to Him. You are His child. That's what 1 John says as well, that the Spirit is testifying with us uh, that we are abiding in Him and that He is abiding in us. So that, that's a subjective assurance poured out as an experience. But the second thing here is that God demonstrates His love. He demonstrates His love. The experience is in verse 5, but then Paul does something really strange. And, and, I, and I've tried my best to describe this last week. This verb, Holy Spirit, uh, is pouring out God's love. It's passive. We don't cause that. We don't produce that. We don't go out and secure that. God does that to us. We are like receptacles, right? We're just being filled up with God's love. However, I want to make this clear. There is something that Paul is going to tell us starting in verse 6 that's really interesting to me as a pastor, as a Christian, as a counselor. Um, if something's going to be poured out on us, you know, it's really important that, you, that you're in the right spot when it happens, right? And I think without saying it explicitly, just the way this whole chapter is structured and laid out, Paul is trying to help us understand that the place where you're going to experience God's love and the most greatest saturation is in gospel proximity. Let me, let me explain it to you this way. I love water parks. How many people here love water parks? Whether you have kids or not, I love them. There's water everywhere. If you want to get wet, go to a water park. You're going to be knee deep in, in water or ankle deep in water or waist high or chest high in water. It's everywhere. It's spraying out of nozzles. There's water slides. There's a lazy pool. There's a wave pool. There, there's... Uh, Splash pads, water is everywhere, and, and, and you can think of a water park like the Bible, okay? God's love and God's truth and God's beauty is all over the Bible. Every page of Scripture, every book, every sentence, every passage is just extolling the glory and the goodness of God, right? But, or I should say and, there are some places that you're going to experience and be saturated more with God's love than you are in other places. And even in the Bible, this is true. You guys know this. If you're trying to encourage somebody, there's certain Bible verses you're probably not going to quote to them. There's, there's probably certain places you're going to go that's going to explode with God's love right off the page, right? So if you're in a water park, and that's like the Bible, and God's love and presence is everywhere, there's one place at a water park that you're going to experience more water than anywhere else. Have you guys ever been underneath one of those big buckets? I experienced that and was surprised. I did not know about those buckets. I was standing somewhere and a bunch of little kids were around me and I thought, man, I'm so popular. All these kids love me. And then I figured out why they were there because something really radical is about to happen. This bucket gets filled up with water and starts to tip and just explodes all over whoever is underneath it. So if you're standing in the right spot, you can really get saturated with water at a water park. And I would say theologically, if you are positioned in the right place, 
If you want to bask in God's love and you're standing in the right place, you're really going to experience it, right? Um, unlike this person over there. Epic fail, right? We want so badly to be doused. We want so badly to experience this, but we're not standing in the right spot. We kind of cut ourselves off from, from this experience because uh, there's no fuel. We want to get struck by lightning, but uh, I mean, that's kind of an odd example. If you did want to get struck by lightning, you would go stand in an electrical storm and hold a metal rod, right? If you wanted to get set on fire, you would douse yourself with gasoline and go find somebody with a match. And Paul is going to argue here that if you want to experience the love of God being poured out for you, there is no better place to go than the cross. There is no better place to go and position yourself than to think deeply and meditate on and expose yourself to the good news the good news, the gospel, that's what the word gospel means. It means the good news about Jesus' rescue of you. When you are at your most helpless state, you were at your worst condition. Humanity was at its darkest time. You were under the wrath of God, under the curse of God. You had nothing but fearful expectation of God's judgment. And at just that moment, Jesus Christ came and he died for you while you were his enemy. That's what this is, is really talking about. So I would say if you want to experience what Paul has been talking about, in Romans 5, verse 5, your greatest opportunity, again, you can't secure this, you can't produce this, but you're most likely to experience what I believe this, this uh, verse is talking about, the Holy Spirit pouring out God's love for you. You're most likely to experience that in gospel proximity, okay? And the, the whole Bible really argues this. I was reading Hebrews the other day, and in Hebrews chapter 12, it says this. It says, consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that you may be encouraged. The book of Hebrews says that over and over, doesn't it? Consider Jesus. But we're being persecuted, I know. Consider Jesus. But we're doubting God's love, I know. Consider Jesus. It's like Paul is teaching us and the writer of Hebrews is teaching us and really the whole Bible is teaching us to when you are struggling, when you are languishing, when you feel weak, when you are doubting, when you need to experience God's love being poured out to you, go sit underneath the cross and go sit by that empty tomb and go sit on the mountainside where he ascended into heaven and is now at the right hand of his father interceding for you, seated because his work is done. You go sit there and you saturate yourself, your mind and your heart with the truth of the gospel. You could even say it this way. God, uh, we experience God's love for us emotionally, uh, spiritually, it's a subjective experience that happens to us, but we also see God's love demonstrated to us historically, grounded in doctrine, grounded in truth, grounded in an event that happened that's tangible, that's objective. Those two things are not enemies, they're not mutually exclusive. Truth and experience, uh, logic and fire, word and spirit, those two things are never pitted against one another in the Bible. God's love has been poured out to us, and we're talking about the gospel, good news, doctrine, rich, deep, sound gospel theology. That's what this passage is about, and that's what Paul does really in verse 6. Check this out. Let's jump right in here. Paul says in verse 5, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And then verse 6, 4, or you could say, because while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, just stop there for a, minute, for a minute, and I want you to think about that. Think about that text. You know, I like the movie A Christmas Carol, or The Christmas Carol. 
think Cliff, that's one of your favorites too, right? And there's a, like an animated version that Jim Carrey was in that Disney did. Have you guys seen that one? It's pretty cool. Um, and it shows the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. But one of my favorites is the ghost of Christmas past because it comes and it wakes up Scrooge. It gets him out of bed and it joins hands with him and, and flies him into his past to all these historical events that shaped Ebenezer Scrooge and made him into the person that he is. And I would say that the Holy Spirit, in a sense, is doing this with us. We've already experienced the love of God in our hearts, and now the Holy Spirit wants to come, the Holy Ghost, not the ghost of Christmas, Christmas past, but almost as if he comes and he takes us by the hand, and he's going to fly us through history to an event that happened in the past that can deeply shape us and nourish us and strengthen us. And that event is the cross. That's what he says in verse 6. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There's two things that we really uh, have to undergo to experience what Paul's talking about here. Some people call it gospel wakefulness. Some people call it, you know, Paul's words, Holy Spirit being poured out in your heart. You have to experience utter brokenness which human beings do not like. I don't like to be broken, do you? I like to be on cloud nine. I don't like to be broken. But the Bible argues for until you experience utter brokenness, you're not going to be able to experience this pouring out of God's love. So utter brokenness and utter awe, A-W-E from Arkansas. Just make sure you know what I'm saying here. Utter brokenness and utter awe. And this, this verse has both of them. The brokenness is while we were ungodly. That We, we just slide right over that when we read this. Christ died for us, this passage argues, when we were ungodly, when we were weak. That word in Greek, it just means without strength, powerless, impotent. You had absolutely nothing to aid or assist yourself. This is like I've fallen and I can't get up, you know, the commercial back in the day. I'm helpless. Not only am I helpless, we're not reaching out our hands for God to help us. The Bible says we are unrighteous. No person seeks after God. He's going to argue it a little bit later. If you look down here, just go ahead and look at verse, let's read verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more Shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Verse 10. For if while we were enemies. You guys see that? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So we were weak, we were ungodly, we were sinners, and we were enemies. Utter brokenness. That's intended for you to experience utter brokenness, to say, I was that messed up, Jesus had to come and die for me. I appreciate what Paul says here. He says in verse 6, at the right time. What is that? Have you ever considered that? What does that mean? At the right time, Christ died for us. What's that all about? At the right time. Do you ever wonder, we talked about this last Christmas, why did God wait so long to send Jesus into the world to die for his enemies? Why so long? Have you ever thought about that? It's good. To th this, this verse is inviting us to, to think about things like this. I mean, the world had had 1,400 years with the law of Moses, 1,400 years to try and keep that thing for a self-salvation project. How did they do with it? 
<laughs> Nobody. When Jesus came, not one person had ever kept the law of God, not one. Nobody could, nobody did, nobody was able, nobody was willing. And think about when Christ came, uh, 30 AD, if you want to use a date on the calendar, all the great philosophers, all the great politicians, all the great historians, all the great, all, all the best and brightest and sharpest minds had come along. All those people that were promising solutions, right? By the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and he said, where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Where are all the people that were supposed to make the world better? The world's worse because of them, not better. When Paul wrote that, there were like 70 major ideologies and philosophies banging around Rome. And the world was none the better because of it. Think about it. We've had all these religions at the time Jesus came. And people still hated each other. We're still in conflict. We're still helpless. We're still hopeless. We're still enemies. God waited until uh, the earth was the most ripe and the most dark for judgment. And he did something really shocking and he did something surprising. He sent his son not to judge us, but to save us. That's what Paul is arguing here. When we were at our worst, when we were without strength, we were helpless, we were hopeless. That's when Jesus swooped in in history and came down. This, this text is an invitation to explore the depths of the good news. I love the way the Bible really does that. That's what Jesus would, Cliff preached a message when he talked about the kingdom of, of God, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Jesus is helping us understand. It's good to think about what was, the, what was Jesus coming and dying for us like? Well, there's a parable about a prodigal son. Don't you guys love that parable about the prodigal son? There's this amazing, compassionate father who even though his son uh, went on an all-expense paid trip out of the country and, and squandered his father's inheritance, when he came back, his father was on the front porch waiting and ran out to greet him and forgave him, right? We all want God to be that father, and he is, right? But you know what so often escapes our notice? That we're that kid. <laughs> we want God to be the compassionate father waiting on the porch, but we don't realize we were the prodigal son or the prodigal daughter that ran off and squandered his living, shook our fist, our worst things, in his face, just like Michael Whitman did to, to Pastor Peter Miller. We're just like that. We were God's enemies. And you know what? God didn't wait on us to become his friends because that was never going to happen. He wasn't waiting on us to surrender with a white flag. That wouldn't happen. Jesus was in heaven. And he knew the world's not getting better, the world's getting worse. It's time. He sent Jesus. He sent his son. He sent his best to come and invade time and space, crawl inside a human body, and endure the suffering of the cross. That's what this passage is inviting us to do. And listen, we, we don't make any, we don't try to conceal the fact that we are what I would call a, a, a gospel-centered, a Christ-centered, a gospel-driven church, which, mean, which means this. We put the gospel at the center of all we do because the Bible does. You know, the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you have all these epistles. Have you ever wondered, why do we have all those? We already have the story of Jesus. We know he came. We know he lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. He died a horrible death in our place, on our behalf, as our substitute. He died. He rose from the grave. He ascended to heaven. The end. And then, you know, the beginning of Acts, we could use that. The Holy Spirit was sent. Why do we need the rest of the Bible? The New Testament authors assume that you and I need more gospel exposure. We need to be in gospel proximity. We need, we need the apostles to tell us from every possible angle how this message about Jesus coming and dying in our place should shape our life for mission, send us out into a broken world, help us leverage our gifts 
to see God's kingdom grow and the, and the church expand, right? The whole Bible just assumes that we need more gospel. We need more of that. Even some of the passages that I read to you last week, here was one of them from Ephesians 3. This is Paul praying that God may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit. We're talking about power through the Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So there's this Spirit, Holy Spirit, doing His work. There's being filled with all the fullness of God, and in the middle of that is comprehending more deeply the gospel, comprehending more deeply and profoundly what Jesus came to do on your behalf and my behalf. That's what this passage is, is talking about. That's what Paul is doing here. He's inviting us to do that more. So when it comes to basking in God's love, the, the best place to do that is right underneath the cross because there's no greater demonstration of love in the world than that. And that's really the argument that Paul's making here. He's saying, look, let's stop and think about this for a minute. You may give your life for somebody who's good, right? Would you give your life for somebody that's a good person? Maybe, possibly, that's what he argues. I mean, I have six kids and I would lay my life down for any one of them. Those rascals, even on their worst day, I'd still do it because they're my flesh and blood and I love them. I have a connection. I'm invested, right? Uh, and you, I'm sure you would too. There's people, listen, there's people that give, uh, they donate their organs to people even though it will put them at great risk because they love them. They love them. They want to help them. Um, I read about a single mother of four last week that was in a home and it caught on fire in the middle of the night and she had four kids in there. And she suffered second, third degree burns over 60% of her body to get all four of her children out. And she did it. And she's in a coma still. And they don't know if she's going to make it. Now, man, that's love. I mean, was, is that a, even hearing that, are you like, wow, man, that's love. And it is. That is love. But what Paul is arguing is probably any of us would do that if we're thinking clearly, right? But that's not what Jesus did. <laughs> I mean, think if somebody's on death row. Somebody's on death row, and they're going to lose their life, unless somebody stands in their place. If that was one of your kids, would you do it? Oh, man, come on, parents. <laughs> would you do it? Of course you would do it. Of course you would. Of course you would. Uh, but what if it was somebody that wasn't one of your kids? What if it was, in fact, somebody that was on death row because they murdered one of your kids? Then would you do it? Then would you go trade places with them? I'm guessing you probably wouldn't, would you? What about this? Would you send your son to trade places with them? <laughs> Do you see, man? That's what Paul, he's inviting us. Think more deeply about the gospel. It's really profound. It's really counterintuitive and unhuman. It's surprising. It's shocking. And it's powerful. That's what George Washington experienced when he saw this man that walked 70 miles to plead for the life of his enemy. It moved Washington to write a pardon. That's a moving story, but it's not nowhere nearly as moving as this is. He died for his enemy. He sent his son. Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that they could experience the adoption. That's amazing. That's assurance. And that's the way that uh, 
Paul continues to make this argument. The gospel is the nuclear warhead for doubt. It blows up doubt. It clears up confusion. It lifts your hearts when you're suffering and when you need hope. That's what this passage means. Elise Fitzpatrick wrote a, uh, she wrote a commentary on Romans, and she said this. Because before I quote her, I want to tell you, this is the last point. God applies his love. First he poured it out, then he demonstrated it, and now he is going to apply it in the last part of this passage. He's saying, if you know all of these things about God's love for you, you were his enemy, you were weak, you were ungodly, you were a sinner, he died for you then, can't you rest assured that he's going to finish what he started? (laughs) Because now you're not his enemy, you're his friend. Now you're not alienated, you've been reconciled. Now you're not outside of the circle. You're in the family. You have his last name. You belong to him. He's not about to let you go now. Do you see how that's assurance? Once you've been adopted, once you've been given the family name, once you're inside the kingdom, now more than ever God is going to wrap his arms around you and and you're not going to fall away. It can't happen. It's not a possibility, not even remotely. You didn't have anything to do with your salvation. Remember, you were weak. You were alienated. You were an enemy. You were shaking your fist at God. So you're certainly not going to be the one that's going to keep yourself in his power. God's going to do that. He's going to do this. This is what Elise Fitzpatrick said. She said, if it meant that much to God to be reconciled to you, doesn't it stand the reason that he'll follow through on all his promises to care for you today? She says, can you imagine a scenario in which you worked for years to save up thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a precious diamond ring only to throw it in the trash? John MacArthur said this, if Christ dying could save you when you were an enemy, can Christ living keep you while you are a son? If Christ dying could reconcile us to God, can Christ living keep us? It's amazing, isn't it? What assurance that gives you. When I moved to Florida, when I was 22 years old, I moved in with a pastor, lived with his family for seven years. Um, and I was always nervous. They, they never did anything to make me feel Anything other than that I was their child, gave me a bedroom to share with their son above the garage. And they, they, they took me in just like I was one of their family. I have an amazing mom and an amazing dad. And I had moved 800 miles to come, uh, come to Florida and train at that church. I didn't have anywhere to live. And that family took me in. They, she, the mom did my laundry. She made me lunch when I went to work. They let me stay there without having to pay rent. It was amazing. But I always felt strange, like, man, I better keep myself in line here or they're going to kick me out. I mean, they let me do everything with them. They would go on vacation, I would go on vacation. Uh, Somebody would give something generous to their family, I would share in that. But I always felt, you know, I'm hesitant to say I felt like an outsider because they never made me feel that way. It was just my heart. I'm an insecure person, naturally. I I guess I could say this way. I was radically insecure. I felt like, man, one false move and they're going to boot me out on the curb and I'm going to be on my own. I don't know if some of you may know what I'm talking about. But then something happened. When, I've, never, I've never told anybody this before. I hope you feel privileged. You're the first to hear this. They did something that in their mind was very small, but it was huge in my mind. They took a family picture one Christmas and they said, hey, Tommy, get up here and get in the picture. And it floored me, man. I was speechless. I'm like, no, 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 this is your family. And they're like, no, you're, you're family. We want you in the picture. And, and they took that family picture, and the mom had it framed. And I found it. I was digging through some, some you, know, you dig under your stuff during the holidays, and I found this picture. You want to see it? Do you guys like to see it? I had hair then. 
There I am. <laughs> I know. That is Pastor Roy Hargrave and his wife, Marky, and their beautiful children. And I am in that family picture in the back, smiling with hair, a lot younger. <laughs> um, that gave me security and assurance that they, didn't, they, had, they had no idea what it did. And that, my friend, really pales. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change that picture so you don't... <laughs> That pales in comparison to what God has done to give us assurance. I mean, what else would God have to do to convince you that he loves you? We're always wanting, you know, prove that you love me. Prove that you love me. Buy something for me. Do something for me. Christ is like, do you know that I was rich and I left my riches in heaven and I became poor for your sake so that you may become the riches of God in me? Like, okay, he, he bought something for me. Why don't you do something for me? You know, a lot of people pit God the Father's love against Jesus the Son's love. They're like, God was, was angry, and here's what they do. They take two truths in the Bible, and, and they create tension between them when there is none. The Bible says God the Father, he, we were under his wrath because we had broken his law. We had transgressed his commandments, and we were under his wrath. And then Jesus, the son, he comes along and he's so loving and he's so kind. So he's arguing with the father, uh, please accept them. I love them. They're better than you think they are. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. It teaches that we were under God's wrath, but God also had love for us. How can two of those things exist in God at the same time? I don't know. If you can figure that out and explain it, we're in trouble because you're God, right? <laughs> the Bible just says both of those things coexist at once. There's no tension there. We were under God's wrath, but his love, he had such love for us. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. It wasn't, Jesus didn't come and die for us so that God could love us. Jesus came and died for us because God loved us. Because God loved us. That's what he did. In fact, check this out. Check this verse out. This is Jesus finishing his sermon on the mount. Well, at least the part in chapter 5. And he says this. He's talking to his disciples. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. What's he saying? If you want to be like God, love your enemies. God has enemies. They're under his wrath, but he also has love for them. That blows your mind, doesn't it? And then he says this, so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If, if people are thinking that God only saves people who are godly and who are his friends and who are respectable and devoted and loyal to him, uh, man, that's, that's no argument for the love of God. Even the tax collectors do that. Everyone in this room does that. People that love you, you love them back. You know what's hard to do, impossible to do, is love your enemies. And that's what God did. That's what Jesus demonstrated. And that's how this passage is applying God's love. That should give you such hope, such assurance. That should anchor you and tether you to the most solid thing in the universe, God's love for you. It's never going to fizzle. It's never going to change. You didn't do anything to cause it, so you can't do anything to forfeit it or lose it. That's why this, this whole chapter has been called the greatest treatment on assurance in the Bible. The greatest treatment of assurance in the Bible. God's love has been poured out on us. We are under that bucket of God's love. Do you know why? God poured out a bucket of something else 
on, on his son, didn't he? God poured out the bucket of his wrath on Jesus Christ. And he poured out his love on us. Man, what a trade. What an amazing thought. How profound is that? How moving is that? When I talk about God's wrath and I talk about God's judgment, it's not because I want you to feel deplorable. I hope you guys know that. It's, it's, we need to feel utter brokenness so that we can fit, be in utter awe. Because I think, I, think there's, I think there is a starvation of wonder and, and glory of what Jesus has done for us. Because we're afraid to talk about those things. We just think, oh, that's cool what Jesus did. That's not cool. That's, that's amazing. That's profound. That's unprecedented. That's unconditional. It's amazing. It's moving. And not only does it give us assurance, you know, that assurance sends us out into the world to do hard things, to take risk for Jesus Christ, to stand up in a broken world that is growing more and more hostile toward the things I'm talking about today. Those people need the same love that we needed. And it's not going to be easier to reach them. It's going to be harder. And you're not going to be able to do that if, you're not, if you don't have this assurance, if you're not tethered to God's love. That's what this passage is all about. So how should we respond to that? At the right time, God died for those who are weak, who are ungodly, who were sinners, who were enemies. Today might be your right time, not to demonstrate God's love. That's already been done, but to receive God's love. Have you received God's love in Jesus Christ? I'm asking every single person in that room, just for a second, just, just pause. We're, we're, we're done here. We're closing. But I want you to think about this. Have you received the love of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? You go search the annals of history and find for me the most heroic person apart from Christ and tell me that he died for his enemies? I mean, your, your career is not going to die for you. It may be the most important thing to you in your life right now, but it did not die for you. Your beauty did not die for you. Your bank account did not die for you. Your family, your friends, they didn't die for your sins. Only one person, one person did that. The love has been demonstrated, but have you received that love? Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. For my burden, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Have you experienced that true rest? Plato didn't do that for you. Aristotle didn't do that for you. Socrates didn't do that for you. Buddha did not do that for you. Muhammad didn't do that for you. And no, no other figure in the history of the world did that or made that promise or gave that invitation to you. Come to Jesus. He died for his enemies. He has plenty of love and grace and mercy and compassion to lavish you with. He has a treasure chest full of that stuff. And every single time a sinner comes and repents and is reconciled, the angels in heaven rejoice and we do too, just like Luke 15 says. We should all celebrate when God finds one of his lost children. And maybe you are one of those lost children and you've wandered in here today and you have no idea why or how. And God just wanted you to hear this message. He loves you. He's proved his love for you. All that's left is for you to receive it, to ask God, please forgive me, to, to face your utter brokenness. You are a promise breaker. You are a transgressor. You are just as guilty of treason as Michael Whitman was to America, but, but in a greater cosmic sense, you, were a you committed treason against God. You spurned his love, turned your face against him, but he came after you because that's who he is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this rescue. Thank you so much for this reminder and this power and this glory of your sacrifice on our behalf. I pray that Today, it would reach places of us that maybe it has not reached 
before. If nothing else, Lord, I pray that this would open us up to admit the worst things about ourselves. Lord, it is so hard to get together with people who are honest about their shortcomings and their failures. Even when we pray, Lord, sometimes when we just pray for things that are real, but they just, in the grand scheme of what's going on in the world, they seem petty. Lord, we need your rescue. We need continually to be rescued. This passage talks about full salvation right up until the time that either we die or you come to gather together your church, Lord. We are, we are being saved in a sense that we are being set apart. We are being sanctified. We are becoming more and more Christ-like. We're seeing our sins. We're turning in, in greater dependency upon you. And Lord, help us to see this assurance of your love that we have in Romans 5 and be able to face the worst parts of ourselves so that we can get the help that we need. We can be honest. We can be open to you, Lord. You're not going to change your mind. You already know all our secrets, Lord. You're, you're omniscient. You know the worst things about us, and you're not going anywhere. You're not going to change your mind ever. You died for us while we were your enemies, and now we're your friends, Lord, and you're utterly committed to us to the very end. Thank you so much for that. Move in our hearts today with that truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, listen, our, our worship team is going to play a song. We call this our Selah song, a song of reflection for you to just sit quietly and just ponder what you've heard. Do your own arguing with yourself. Paul has just shown you the way. There's tons of different angles you can look at the gospel, what Jesus did for sinners like you and me. He made us his friends. It's like this or it's not like this. Argue with yourself. Reason with yourself. Bask in gospel proximity so that this love of God can be poured out in your hearts in new and powerful and fresh ways. And we have a prayer team in the back. If you have any questions about what you've heard, you want to know more about what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? How can I become a disciple? How can I join this church? Do I need to be baptized? Can I just pray with somebody? We'll be in the back waiting on you to do that. And then uh, Mike's going to come give us some announcements and dismiss us with a charge. TJ, Jeff. This is Jesus is mine. Oh, what a full taste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. is my story this is my song I'm praising my Savior all the day long this is my story this is my song in my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight, visions of rapture, 
now births on my side and angels descending to bring from above the echoes of mercy and your whispers of love cause this is my story this is my song praising my Savior all the day long this is my story this is my song I'm praising my Savior all the day long perfect submission all is at rest and I and my Savior am happy and blessed just watching and waiting, looking up above, filled with his goodness, we're lost in your love. Cause this is my story, this is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Praising my Savior all my day long. Father God, we just praise you, Father. And we just be able to bask in the grace that you have shown us, Father, because of what you have done on the cross, Father. It was not just done 2,000 years ago, but you still continue to show us your love to this day, Father. God, pulling us out of that grave, Father, I just pray that we would just be able to show that same love to our brothers and sisters who have not met you yet, Father, that it would not put us on a high horse of thinking we are saved and we are good, Father, but we, our heart would still pour out and we would still be able to love those the way you love them, Father. Father, we just praise you for everything you're doing within our families, Father, and within this church, Father, that we would continue to be able to humble ourselves, that we would be able to walk in the light and just follow you, Father, that everything would be for your glory, Father. We just praise you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. A couple announcements and then we'll uh, be dismissed. We don't pass an offering plate here at Grace Life. We have the donation box in the back. There's also ways to give through the uh, church app or the website. So uh, if you, uh, the Lord's laying on your heart to give, there's several different options, just so you know. Um. We have eight kids, 
Pastor Tommy only has six. And it's really, it's our, it's our fault. We wanted to be like Tommy and Sarah, and we accidentally overachieved. But a couple weeks ago, we took everybody, the whole family, on vacation. We drove up to see Christina's parents in the mountains of North Carolina. And while we were there, we went to Fontana Dam, which is 480-foot-tall dam. It is the highest dam or the tallest dam on the eastern coast of the United States. And it's amazing. It's breathtaking. It's everything you'd, you'd think. So we're standing at the top of this dam looking over the railing, and it's absolutely just dizzying. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And Noah, who's the second oldest, he's 11, we're looking over this dam, and Noah says, Dad, you would do anything for me, right? And I thought, I need to be real careful how I answer this. And then my second thought was, uh, what did you just drop down the dam? So we're looking over, and I said, yeah. And he goes, if I fell down this dam, is it possible that I would survive? I said, well, you know, buddy, anything's possible. He said, okay. So if I fell down the dam, would you come after me just in case I was still alive? I said, yeah, I'd come after you the same way I went. <laughs> and I realized in that moment, kids are the worst. <laughs> they are the absolute worst. Like, don't put me in this position. But it's because they're the worst that they need Jesus, right? We have a whole bunch of teenagers who are just like me and you. They are the worst and they need Jesus. So one of the reasons that Pastor Matt is here is to launch a student ministry to reach these awful human beings that Christ died for, right? The ones who are already saved, who know Jesus already, they need to hear the gospel again too, just like we do. Every day we need to preach the gospel. So we have a, a launch meeting, kind of a vision casting meeting on Sunday, December 5th. I have a text from Pastor Tommy confirming there will, in fact, be pizza. So, you know, pizza. Um, so if you're interested in helping with the student ministry, if you have teenagers, if you would like to minister to teenagers, if you just want to be part of that vision casting, come and meet with us after church on Sunday the 5th. Only other announcement is community groups, which are not meeting this week because of Thanksgiving. Um, but it's such an incredible time to be sheep together to uh, live life together, to really make those connections and the relationship that God designed us to have. Um, we're last year, the previous years, we've done a church-wide Christmas party. We're not doing that this year. We're going to have the individual community groups are going to do Christmas parties, not just for people who already come, but for anybody who wants to be a part. So pick a party. If you're not part of a community group, um, let that be your first sort of introduction. We'll have more information about times and dates and places as we get a little bit closer, but get involved with the body of Christ on an even deeper level and, and really, truly just reap the benefits and rewards from that. So let's stand together. We'll, we'll say our charge and be dismissed. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. 
God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent.